Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. Well, welcome to Sunday evening uh, service. If you're watching online, we want to welcome you as well. Uh, my name is Jake, and I am excited and nervous to talk to you tonight. Um, I'm not sure if you knew your, what you were getting yourself into, but you're here nonetheless. Tonight, I want to talk to you about four things to know about the Bible when having conversations with your kids or with family members or peers uh, when talking about the LGBTQ plus community. So four things to know about the Bible when having conversations about the LGBTQ plus community. Some people's heart rate got up. Some people are thinking, what is he going to say right now? And I just want to uh, preface my talk or my message tonight with um, a friendship that I have with, um, he's a, it's a ministry friendship, and his name is Brad, and I, I met Brad a few years back. There was a situation in the youth group where we had um, just two girls who were, um, we had a girl in the youth group who was same-sex attracted, and she was acting out her attractions. And we were working with the parents, and I had no idea what to do. I, I, I was like, you know, God's grace is enough, but I, I mean, I, I don't know how to help this parent. I don't know how to help this girl. And so I talked to Brad, and Brad, um, a ministry friend of mine, he's a faithful faithful follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. He's a, like a life coach, and he at one time was a pastor, and he is same-sex attracted. But he's submitted his attraction to the lordship of Jesus as to not live out his attractions because he said following Jesus is better than fulfilling my pleasures. And I remember talking to him and he was helping me work through the situation and I remember being like, I don't think I love Jesus as much as he does. I remember thinking like if I were at the foot at the altar when I was getting, when I was getting born again and on the altar I had to lay never being able to fill my, sex, my sexual desires. If I had to lay that down there, I was like, I don't know if I would have done it. I don't know if I would have had the courage or the humility or the faith to lay down my sexual desires at the foot of the cross. And yet, my friend Brad, that's exactly what, exactly what he did. He goes on to tell his story. He told a story to me. He told it at our young adult group and he told it on our podcast as well about how he was having a prayer with the Lord and he said, Lord, I will be celibate for the rest of my life because I found satisfaction in you. It doesn't mean his life is easy. It doesn't mean that that's even fair in the sense that we Americans like fairness. But it is a testament to the sufficiency of God, the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the power of God to save a soul in the midst of whatever attraction or temptation someone might have. So I've learned 
so much about following Jesus with my purity from my friend Brad, who is same-sex attracted. I've learned so much. And so I preface this by saying, what I'm about to say is, is I'm giving you four things from the Bible, but I'm trying to just... I'm not trying to make it easier, but I'm trying to ease and say there's so many judgments that we can have on this conversation already without actually listening. Like we can almost like listen to a snippet and then we make a final judgment without actually listening to what a communicator is saying. So I just say, give me some grace and let's, let's walk through this. I think this is going to help you as a parent. I think it's going to help you as an individual. I think it'll help you as a follower of Jesus. And I, I, I'll also say that my, my message tonight is primarily for Christians. And so if you're watching online, you're watching this later on, or if you're in the crowd, this is primarily for people who are Christians and who submit themselves to the authority of the scriptures. And if you do not have that worldview, you can listen, and I would encourage you to seek to understand where a Christian, an evangelical Christian would come from, as opposed to making preconceived judgments that you've maybe heard from TikTok or Instagram. So how I'm going to start this off is by saying I'm equipping you with four conversations that you might have with biblical responses, but I'll also preface it by saying my purpose for equipping you is not to have debates. Everyone repeat after me. Say, I will not use this information to debate someone. (laughs) Some of you, you didn't repeat. Your fingers were crossed. Some of you got a Facebook post from a family member that you're like, okay, I'm going to go and write all of her comments on that, on the Facebook post that they made. Listen, we are not seeking to debate and prove people wrong. We are seeking to gain and equip ourselves with tools that the Holy Spirit can use in conversations. We should seek to understand, but not to be pushovers. We should say, oh, listen to where you're coming from, but hey, have you thought about it from this angle? But if you don't have the tools, then you can't have that conversation. You'll feel insecure because you won't have the answers, and then you'll go and search on Google and YouTube, and then you'll come back and you'll debate. But if you have the tools, and then you submit those tools to the Holy Spirit, I believe that he'll help you reach into maybe the world of someone who might never come to church and offer them the grace of God, but also the truth of God that we find in the scriptures. If you're ready for this, give me a thumbs up. All right. I'm just, if your thumbs were down, I was still going to go. So, but it's okay. We're going. So I'm going to structure this. As, I'm going to give you four things. So four things that I have heard over the years pastoring, four common statements from the world or from a secular unbelieving perspective. And I want to give you a response to each of those statements. Sound good? So the first one is evangelical Christians hate the LGBTQ plus community. I, ha- I hear this a lot, that we hate them. Well, if Christians hate the LGBTQ community because of our disapproval of their lifestyle, then we would also conclude that we would hate drunkards hate liars, hate the greedy, hate heterosexual sinners, just because we do not approve of a lifestyle does not mean we hate individuals. Now, have Christians done a good job with people who are part of the LGBTQ plus community? I mean, this is, no. We've not done a great job. 
my friend Brad talks about growing up in, in church and in the youth group and he talks about how when all of his guy friends in middle school would talk about finding girls attractive, in his mind he thought boys were attractive, but then he would never say anything because his friends would constantly make fun of gay people. And then he would go to church and, and, and people would, would say things like, there's an attack on the marriages and the nuclear family and the, the gay people are trying to steal our kids and there was just this derogatory tone around anyone who would, might be attracted to the same sex. Now, should we, should we forfeit truth for the sake of making people feel comfortable? By no means. But we have to get this thing straight. Attraction does not equal sin. Just because someone might be attracted to the same sex does not mean that they are sinning. In the same way that if I am attracted to another woman, it doesn't mean that I'm sinning by being attracted, by noticing the beauty of another woman. It becomes sinful when I act immorally on my attraction. And so because we're so unfamiliar and because this, this LGBTQ plus conversation has invaded the church so um, forcefully, we've almost taken an extreme defense position as opposed to saying, let's think about this in a sober-minded way. Now, I sense some of you getting uncomfortable. I'll just say, stick with me. <laughs> and, and let's hear this out because just because someone's attracted doesn't mean that they're sinning. And so when we're handling family members or, or talking to kids or we're talking to peers or talking to coworkers, we have to get it out of our head that, that the LGBTQ plus community or people are icky by default. They're image bearers of God. They're humans to be loved. They're people to have conversations with. They are not our enemy. They are not. Some of you have family members. Some of you have have kids that are starting to identify as an LGBTQ plus community. You have coworkers, and what we would know is that they are people. They are people to be loved, and they are image bearers of God. And I say this because I, there's been this um, feeling in, in conservative evangelical churches that, that we should be afraid of them, and, and, and that's not how Jesus treated the sexually immoral. Jesus treated them with dignity, respect, and honor. He never condoned their lifestyle, but always saw them as image bearers. And so although we haven't done a great job, I think we can do better. It doesn't mean that we hate them just because we disapprove scripturally of their lifestyle. Does this make sense? I do think we can improve. So I've, and over the years I've had past, or as a pastor, I've had people confess all sorts of sin to me. And the reason I'm sensitive, really not sensitive, the reason I'm saying it from this perspective is as a pastor, I've had multiple, multiple, over, do, over two dozen people over my time of being a pastor confess to me, young men and, and some women, but it was in a kind of a, 
it was a co-ed setting, confessed to me that they are attracted to the same sex. And so I, I go, they don't hate Jesus. They are on a journey, but they don't want to make it public. They're not openly living a gay or lesbian lifestyle, but they are battling with temptation, and yet we're lumping them in with another group that we don't even necessarily know. And I'm saying, we should just be more careful with how we talk, and we should seek to build a community, not that enables sins, but that welcomes sinners. And realize that people who are attracted to the same sex can be born again and be uh, mature contributors to the life of our church. And I would dare say that we need them in our churches to be the full expression of the bride of Christ. Because the mark of maturity is not marriage, kids, retirement. (laughs) The the, the mark of a mature Christian is Christ-likeness. And I would say if somebody who is attracted to the same sex can come to the foot of the cross and say, not my will, but your will be done, we should should be cheering them on. We should be saying, I am inspired by your love and devotion to Jesus. You are my brother, you are my sister. Even if you have a journey just like everyone else that's full of slow growth towards Christ. Does this make sense? I've talked to these people, but I've also talked to people who have heterosexual sin, people who are doing video chats online, not with heterosexual sin. And, And I'm just saying we all have our past. And what if we rejected every heterosexual sinner? There would be like nobody here. There'd be nobody here. As long as we as individuals are committed to submitting to the lordship of Jesus, then we say, you are family. You are family. Our goal is not to get to a place to where we are never tempted. Our goal is to become mature men and women of God who steward our sex drive and steward our hearts in a way that honors and pleases God. This is what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And the reality of the condition of our culture is that 16, depending on where you go, 16 to 20% of Gen Z, okay? So if you're not familiar, Gen Z is basically like 16-year-olds, or I'm sorry, it'd be like 12-year-olds to like 24, 25-year-olds right now. 16 to 20% of them identify as LGBTQ. That's, that means if you have 100 Gen Zers in a room, that means that 16 to 20 of them are going to identify as LGBTQ+. Which means that we as the church must seek not to build environments that enable sin, but that welcome sinners. Right? Because if they are identifying at that amount, at that rate, that means that we are inevitably going to cross paths with these people and we need to have the heart of Jesus and the mind of Christ as we minister and as we relate and as we rub shoulders with our fellow man and women.
Amen? It's just the reality of where we're at. But, so, the accusation is evangelical Christians hate the LGBTQ community. Have we done the best job? No, but it doesn't mean that we hate them just because we disapprove of their lifestyle. And I think a great, um, a great way to respond to this type of question is to say, no, the, we, we actually need to equip ourselves with a true purpose of sex. Because if you, can, if you can unpack and communicate the true purpose of why God created sex, it actually puts a framework of why we disapprove of an LGBTQ plus lifestyle. So it's not just, oh, it's icky. It's like, no, we understand God's design and we can communicate in a way that makes sense. So I'm going to break this down in the next like three minutes just really quick. I said it last week. I'm going to restate it tonight. So the purpose of sex is found within the purpose of marriage. So we need to understand the purpose of marriage in order to understand the purpose of sex. So the purpose of marriage, I'll put it this way, is to represent God's covenantal love to the earth or to humanity. That is the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is to represent God's covenantal love to the earth. The second purpose is to reflect the love that is found in Christ Jesus. And so we see this in in Genesis 2 where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the sea and over the birds and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So we as humans are image bearers and what we see in Genesis 1 in the creation account is that it is this complementary difference that comes together in marriage that images God. It represents God. When male and female come together in marriage, it represents God. We also see that when male and female come together in the church, not in marriage, but in church family, it also represents God. But specifically marriage, it's supposed to represent or reflect the covenantal love of God for humanity. That's why he created marriage. Now, why did he create sex? I'm sorry, actually, I want to read one more verse. Um, It's in Ephesians 5. It says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is referencing back to Genesis 2. God's design for marriage was that the two shall become one flesh to represent God. That's why he created marriage. And so, this mystery is profound, Ephesians 5.32, and I am saying this, that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage, the two shall become one, refers to how Christ will become one with the church when he returns. And so marriage, although this might be lofty for some, it's crucial to understand this, is that marriage, the purpose is to reflect the love that Christ has for humanity. So the world is supposed to look at marriages and say, wow, that love is unlike any other love that I've seen. That love is different than any other love that I've seen. They are self-sacrificial. They are serving one another. They are patient. They are kind. They are submissive. They They are leading. They are intentional. They are committed. We are supposed to image the love that God has for us, that Christ has had for us. So that's the purpose of marriage. So then the purpose of sex is found within the purpose of marriage 
to reflect the covenantal love of God. So, like I said in Ephesians 5, it says the two will become one flesh. This is talking spiritually, physically, and emotionally. So the purposes of sex, are three, there are three purposes that I, that I see in Scripture. I've kind of categorized them this way. Intimacy that motivates self-sacrificial love is the main purpose. That is the main purpose. The second is procreation, be fruitful and multiply. The third is pleasure. Now, culture tells us the main purpose is pleasure. Culture tells us the main reason that, God, that this is a part of humanity is to enjoy it. And maybe, yeah, have babies, but the main thing is to enjoy it. But in God's design, the main reason is intimacy that motivates self-sacrificial love. So when two people are intimate, whether they're married or not, there's something that happens in the brain. There are chemical releases that God designed to happen, and we'll see what happens. So when, when two people are intimate, there is a happy high of dopamine that is released. That is like the feel-good feeling of the brain. So when two people are intimate, that's released. When you watch pornography, that's released. The bonding, oxytocin, the bonding of oxytocin. So when two people are intimate, there is this chemical called oxytocin released in the brain that actually bonds them together. Bonds them, that, that the experience gets, in a sense, imprinted in the brain. There's the mood stabilization of serotonin. And so once two people are intimate, there's this, all these chemical reactions happening and then the remembering agent of norepinephrine. So God designed it this way in order that two people would be not just be connected physically, not just be connected through a commitment, but that they're actually their body chemistry would be connected. Why? So that they could, they would motivate them to love each other till death do us part. So God in his wisdom didn't put a man and a woman together and say, this is going to suck, but like lay down your life for each other for the rest of your life. He said, I'm actually going to give you this blessing called sex, which you won't even understand it really until 2000, you know, whatever they, whenever they discovered this. Mankind didn't know this, but now with science we understand it, that they actually become one chemically in their brains. Why did God do that? Why did he design it for one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage? Is so that they would mo- it would motivate self-sacrificial love. Why does God say don't have sex before marriage? It's not because he's trying to ruin our fun. He's trying to preserve the motivating factor that will cause you to love your spouse and image his love. Why is he saying don't look at pornography? Because every time we do and we look at the image or we have that experience where all of these chemical reactions are happening and you're actually attaching to an image and not your spouse. And you're using what God made for good and you're using it for selfish desire. Sin. So why? It's not because God's trying to ruin fun. It's because he designed it in a way that would benefit human or it would cause human flourishing if we would trust it. And the beautiful part is even if we've messed up, made mistakes and we've gone too far, he says that anyone who comes to him can become a new creation 
And he can break soul ties, break connections to past relationships, break addictions to pornography and lust, and he can make you a brand new person. He can restore marriages. He can restore intimacy in marriages if we'll submit to him and learn the true purpose of sex. There are some wives who just they think, well, I just sex is to make babies, and then they're like, once they're done having babies, they're like, I guess like I just got to have sex for the rest of my life. And the reality is it's not just about procreation. It is about a motivating, connecting factor that would motivate us to love one another so that the world can see a different kind of love and that we might represent them well. So when we're having, when people say evangelicals hate the LGBTQ community, we don't need to say, oh yeah, yeah, we kind of suck. Yeah, you know. We can say, no, we have, do you know why we believe what we believe? Do you, know, do you know why we hold to a traditional view of marriage and of sexuality? Well, this is why. Because it promotes human flourishing. It may not be acceptable to culture, but it promotes human flourishing and it honors God when we follow the Bible and obey its commands and seek to understand it. So when you're having conversations and somebody says, evangelical Christians hate the LGBTQ community, we would do well to listen to how they've been hurt, but also to give a response that looks something like, just because we don't approve doesn't mean we love you. It just might means we have different values. And if you have a chance to explain why you believe what you believe, it might be worth considering doing, even if they don't appreciate it. <laughs> Second thing that I hear people say, Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 condemn older men sexually abusing younger men, it has nothing to do with monogamous, consensual, same-sex relationships. Okay, it's kind of a lot. So let me read a little bit of Romans 1, and then you'll, it'll make more sense in 1 Corinthians 6. So Romans 1 says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the soundering of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable, dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women who are consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So this is a very, if, if you're not familiar, this is a very popular argument among liberal Christians who would be um, a gay affirming. So the argument goes, it says, or they would say that Romans 1 is not talking about what we would say is monogamous, committed, long-term, same-sex relationships. It is only referring to a cultural phenomenon in Rome where older men were abusing younger, younger men. So Paul wasn't saying monogamous same-sex relationships were, uh, were bad. It's saying, no, only abusive relationships were bad. That's, the, that's what they'll say. But I, I want to give you a response, not to argue, but to have conversations about how this is a faulty argument and it doesn't hold up to the scrutiny of when we look at the scriptures. So the first observation that I'll have in Romans 1, you can go to verse 26, if you can throw it up on the screen. So one of the reasons why this isn't likely the case, scripturally, is because in Romans 1.26, it says that women... We're exchanging natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. 
So if their whole argument is that older men were abusing younger men, then what about the women? The, 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 what I would say here, what Scripture tells us is that Paul is condemning or saying that any same-sex sexual relationship is wrong and sinful. So the first thing is Paul is referring to women, so it can't just be about this cultural phenomenon where older men were abusing younger men. He's referring to monogamous, same-sex, committed relationships and how that is not acceptable for people, for the people of God, for his followers. So women were not abusing younger women. Men were abusing older men. And so the argument doesn't hold up. Another reason why it doesn't hold up is if you go to verse 27 in Romans 1, it says, And the men likewise gave up their natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And so the language here does not, uh, does not connote that it was abusive relationships. It actually infers mutually um, consensual sexual relationships between men. And Paul is, in a sense, condemning that behavior. So the argument that Romans 1 is only referring to older men abusing younger men doesn't hold up when you actually look at the scriptures. And just a little tip, you'll, well, we often find that with liberal theologians and liberal arguments, not politically liberal, but scripturally liberal, we'll find that they often use context to prove their point. And once you go to the scriptures, you don't see what they're saying. They, they use context, history, they'll use all these uh, fine-sounding arguments to try to prove a point, but when you go to the words, you're like, wait a minute, it doesn't add up. Now, not to saying that their arguments don't have some ground to them, because I'm not trying to say that they're just all stupid, that's not the point. The point is, we need to go to the scriptures and not only to context, historical context, because we can manipulate historical context, but we have the words of God right in front of us. Does that make sense, everyone? So 1 Corinthians 6 is our next passage where somebody might say that this is not referring to monogamous same-sex relationships. This is referring to um, older men abusing younger men. It says this in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the, uh, I'm sorry, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. So here we see the term in verse 9, men who practice homosexuality. So let's note here that the Bible never once refers to older men abusing younger men. So the Bible never makes that classification. That is a, uh, you could say, a theological interpretation based on historical context. They're, they're reading outside sources from the Bible to say, oh, this was happening, because it was happening in Rome. That was happening in Rome, but just because it was happening in Rome doesn't mean that's what the Bible is referring to. So we don't see any mention of older men sexually abusing younger men. It refers to men who are, what we'll say here is, who lie with other men. So we'll note again here, it's men who practice homosexuality. So if you or someone you know is attracted to the same sex, you are not condemned because of your attraction. Now, 
We are condemned because we are sinners. But praise be to God that Jesus sent his son to shed his blood, that when we place faith in his blood, we might be cleansed, forgiven. And so just having an attraction doesn't make you a broad brush practicer of homosexuality. It's those who act on their attraction and their temptation to sin who would be one who's considered practicing homosexuality. So there is some controversy. I'll give, this is very common, like very common among, what, what, I'm just coining liberal theologians. Um, there's some controversy over the term homosexuality. It's the word arsenikoites. Okay, it's a Greek word. Arsenikoites. So there's a popular argument is that this word, is Paul made this word up. It's the only time we see it in the, in the New Testament. It's here and in 1 Timothy. Paul's the only one to use it. And so they're saying he made it up. And that it doesn't mean homosexuality like we would say, like monogamous, same-sex, committed relationship. No, it's actually referring to men, older men abusing younger men. So it's once again trying to use this argument. But when you look at it, when you look at the word arsenikoites, you see its parallel word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew. Paul borrows the term from Leviticus 18, where it literally means two men lying with each other. And so they're just, it's, I'm not saying they're stupid. They're not stupid people like liberal theologians. Like they're actually quite intelligent, but just because you're intelligent doesn't mean that you're right. And they're using this framework of the historical context to try to prove a point. When you go to the Septuagint, it literally means two men who lie down together. That's what it means. Homosexuality. What we might also say, it's two men who consensually engage in sexual activity. And so, in further study of the word arsenikoites, or the Greek word for homosexuality, further study shows that it in fact does condemn same-sex, committed, monogamous relationships. Now, another reason to think, to, to re- kind of reject this idea that Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 condemns older men but doesn't talk, ab- talk about monogamous same-sex relationships is because you look at the, the last verse in verse, 12 of 1, or verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 and it says, such were some of you. <laughs> like, you were this, now you're not anymore. And so, it's saying that when we come to Christ, whether it's heterosexual sin, greediness, drunkenness, addicted to drugs, whatever sin we have, he's saying you were those things, now because of Christ you're changed and you live a new lifestyle, countercultural lifestyle. So, oh gosh, I feel like this is important. So, because it's such a common, this is a, such a common objection and your kids, your grandkids, They'll hear this on TikTok. They'll hear this on Instagram. They'll hear it on Facebook. They'll hear it on YouTube. This is a very common objection that's very well known. Even though you're, you're, most people don't understand it, they just hear it and they regurgitate it. And so we got to be prepared to give a biblical response to these things. Not to have debates. So, something to note here. In the last 30 years, they've found that in Rome, through three different uh, uh, findings. One of them is it's called Plato's Symposium. They found that monogamous same-sex relationships were present in Rome. 
So, so much like we see in our culture today, a lot of that was happening in Rome while the, first, while the Bible was being written, while Paul was writing. The same things that were happening now were happening then. For example, Emperor Nero married two different men. Um, there's a book called, um, it's called Homosexuality in Greece and Rome by Thomas Hubbard. And he's not a Christian, but he just studies, he's a, he's a sociologist, so he studies um, culture and, he, in, and whatnot. So he found that every kind of homosexual, homosexual practice, um, every type of homosexual practice today was existent in Greece and Rome in the time of Jesus, Paul, and the apostles. There were improper parties with all sorts of immorality. There were men marrying men and women marrying women in the time that Paul was writing the book of Romans, in the time he was writing 1 Corinthians. So that's just a, that's not as important as the scriptures, but it's a good tool to know that the argument that it was just men abusing younger men, it, it's not, it doesn't hold up under the scriptures or under academia. So third thing, in, Levit- in Leviticus 18, the third thing that you, you might come across in conversations about LGBTQ plus community and how it intersects with the church and our faith is in Leviticus 18, text, the text, well, a text which bans same-sex sexual acts, it also enforces laws about, about shells and mixing fabrics. Therefore, Leviticus 18 is relevant to us now. Raise your hand if you've heard this one. Not many of you. Well, if you have any conversations, you likely will. It's very common. So the, the, their argument goes like this. In Leviticus 18 and 19, we're starting to get the law from God. In it, it includes three types of laws that, that, that Israel is supposed to follow. It would be called moral laws, social ceremonial laws, and hygiene and food laws. So God gives the laws to Israel, three types of laws. In it, include, uh, in it includes the uh, God forbidding same-sex sexual acts. Later on in Leviticus 19, it says that you can't mix fabrics when you're weaving them together. So liberal theologians will say that since it, or it condemns mixing fabrics, well, we all are wearing mixed fabric clothing, who are you to say that they can't practice homosexuality? And so you're all like, oh my gosh, I don't know how I would respond to that. <laughs> and the reality is there's, a, there's actually a quite simple way to, to explain this in that there are three different types of laws that were given to the the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Moral laws, social ceremonial laws, and hygiene and food laws. And so at the time of Jesus, when he came and fulfilled the law, the social ceremonial laws and the hygiene and food laws were actually done away with. So we are left with the moral law that was given to Israel. Some skeptics might say, well, that's convenient, Jake. Who gets to decide that? I'm glad you asked. God does. He shares about it in the New Testament. So we would say the Bible, Pastor Dwayne talked about this, there's progressive revelation, meaning that the further on the timeline of God and Israel and the church, you get progressive revelation. That sometimes, not always, but in sometimes when it's clear, and it, and it not overrides, but it can provide better clarity to what God desires for humanity. So, the consensus, I'm sorry, let's go to Acts 10. In Acts 10, 10 through 15, is the story of Peter 
after Jesus is resurrected, getting a vision. And he's up and he's hungry, wanting something to eat. And they were, they were preparing food for him and he fell into a trance. Okay? Peter falls into a trance. He saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. What he's saying is, I've never broken the food laws, God. And he's saying, get up and eat because the food laws are done with. And all the carnivores are like, amen. And the voice came to him again, a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So, what we find here is that the uh, hygiene and food laws were done away with at the coming and the resurrection of Jesus. And what we find in Galatians 5, 2 through 3, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, which is a part of social ceremonial laws, If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So what we see here is circumcision is a part of the social ceremonial laws. And we see here that Paul is teaching us you don't need to circumcise in order to be a person of God anymore. So it's done away with. But never once do we see a moral law from the Old Testament being overturned. On the contrary, Jesus says that you've heard it said, if you look at a woman, that if you commit adultery, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on the, okay. If you commit adultery, it's a sin. Jesus says, I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. It's the opposite of what's happened with the social and food laws. He took the bar and he says, now that you have my spirit, Here's the bar. And so it's actually the opposite of what you see with the ceremonial or the hygiene food laws. Is that the moral standard has increased since the coming of Christ. It hasn't decreased. So when someone says, well, in Leviticus 18, it bans seashells and it bans mixed fabrics, you can say, okay, are you open? This is what I would write. Are you open to a conversation or are you just trying to prove a point? Okay, you're open to a conversation? Can I show you something in the Bible? Can I just show it to you? I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm just saying to you, this is why I believe what I believe. And you show them, for uh, Acts 10, you show them, uh, Galatians 5, you show them, Matthew 5, you, sh- you show them all the places. You say, this is why I land where I land. Can you understand where, where I'm coming from? And you have the conversation that way. You're not trying to win a debate trying to have a conversation that might draw them, that the Spirit might use to crack and soften their heart to the living God. The last thing I'll say here is that the nation of Israel is really important. The Old Testament was written to a nation, not to people. Now, there were people in the nation, but God was dealing with a nation. And so these ceremonial food laws, these social food laws, were designed to make them set apart from the other nations. God desired that the other nations would look at Israel and be like, those are God's people. That's why he gave them these special laws, to set them apart. So now that God no longer has a nation, he has a family, there's no need for ceremonial or hygiene food laws. That's another example of why we don't need that. So, man, I got one minute. Where did the t- are you guys okay? 
I'm not going to keep going for so long. I'm just going to do this one last one really quick because this is probably one of the most popular ones. It's this, this. Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. You're like, oh no. What am I going to do? Let me just help you. Jesus never said anything about beating children. Jesus never said anything about car bombs. Jesus never said anything about cocaine. Jesus never said anything about weed. All the crackheads are like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Jesus never said, he didn't say a lot of things about, he didn't say, he didn't make commentary on everything that was sinful. But the Bible makes commentary and what we'll say is that Jesus is the word made flesh. Just because Jesus doesn't say something doesn't mean that the authority of scriptures don't speak into it. We don't just go to Jesus to find what God thinks. We go to the whole wisdom that we find in the scriptures. So if someone uses that, and I'm not saying that they're nefarious or evil by saying that, they might be curious. Well, Jesus could have said something, but the reality of the time of his day is universally, the Judaism of his day universally condemned same-sex sexual acts. He didn't need to address it. His apostles addressed it because they were, they were working in Ephesus and Rome and Corinth where there was same-sex sexual activity, but Jesus wasn't in those regions, so he didn't make comment on it. That make sense? Once again, I'm not trying to equip you to debate. I'm trying to equip you to have conversations with your kids, with your family members, uh, with coworkers, in order that you might um, maybe be a bridge to Jesus Christ. Because for a lot of people, these issues are the reason why they don't give Jesus a chance. And if we can be the hands and feet of Jesus, and we might do it in a gracious, yet truthful way, I believe that God will start to prick at their heart in order to bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, just because we have responses doesn't mean that people won't hate us. They'll say all kinds of evil against us, but blessed are you because they did the same thing to the prophets who were before you. It may not be popular. This is going to be on Facebook. I'll probably get called a bunch of names. It may not be popular, but it's the truth And I believe it is the way that we can reach a world that is desperately craving Jesus Christ, even if they don't know it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? You know, a thing that's unique to Christianity that is different than any other religion is that we have a Savior. All other religions, you have to do something in order to earn eternal life. But we have a savior. He is not a savior. He is the savior. And our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, stepped into the world because he loved us. Our savior humbled himself to the point of death on a cross to pay for the sins of humanity, for your sin and for my sin. Our Savior could not be defeated by death. He was raised back to life after three days by the power of God, proving that he is God and he is the only way. And our Savior extends an invitation to any humble heart and says that if you will confess that I am Lord, if you will believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, it says you can be 
saved. Not by your works, not by your morality, but by the grace of Jesus Christ. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. I'm going to say a prayer and I'm going to ask you all to repeat it after me. If you want to call on the name of the Lord Jesus tonight to be saved, I want you to repeat this prayer after me, but mean it from your heart. Everyone else, would you repeat after me? Say, Jesus, thank you for loving me in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my confusion, by sending Jesus, the Savior, to die on a cross for my sin and raise back to life so that I can know God. From this day forward, I give you my life. No turning back. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org, follow us on social media, or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day, and we will see you again soon.